All right, everybody. Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here, and I have a interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now again that's b-a-d-l-a-n-d-s-f-o-o-d.com slash dark topic to check it out badlandsfood.com all right everybody zipix toothpicks this is something that i use all the time so this episode is brought to you by zipix nicotine toothpicks Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting... <laughs> Uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Can we talk seven else? Can we talk about something else?
If you ask me what my least favorite type of music is, it would definitely have to be jazz. Most people go for country, but if you live in the country, you know that it suits these type of places. Sure, it doesn't suit the city, it seems corny. But jazz, jazz just felt awkward. Until I realized that there's 50 different genres of jazz, and most of what I'd thought jazz was, wasn't meant to be it at all. Jazz, it appears, has an identity disorder. What I was hearing sucked really, really bad, like this shit. To me, it's weird, wacky in the worst way, soulless, while behaving soulful. But then I listened to the old stuff, literally searched old jazz, and I realized I'd already been listening to it in the form of bluesy ragtime stuff, hobo music, as I've been thinking of it. It just hadn't registered as jazz to me. Jazz, in my mind, was saxophones and sequin suits, dancing figure eights on the boardwalk, music videos washed in fluorescence. It wasn't Louis Armstrong soaked with sweat using his trumpet like a weapon. Did you know his late hit, What a Wonderful World, is considered jazz? You probably did. I just, just didn't know what jazz was, I guess. That's jazz? What happened to jazz? I guess I like jazz, then. It makes me feel good, some of it. That old stuff, it can be relaxing when it's not annoying. Also somehow serious despite all the bells and whistles. It's obvious to me that often a point is being made in jazz. Coming through in waves, like a message in a bottle. Were the police jazz? Judging from my research, they probably were in some respect, because jazz is everywhere. Jazz seems to have influenced and permeated nearly every popular genre of music in existence along with its brother the blues, of course, and as a result has had a major impact on culture, on the world. I can understand why it would have at one time been called the devil's music. It's often frenetic, improvised, without direction, without obvious purpose, endlessly upbeat while at the same time strained, in a sad way. Like it can't stop bopping, even if it wanted to. It feels manic. If jazz were a face, it would be smiling, too widely and the eyes would likely be bloodshot, bleeding even. The devil's music. Maybe it's the African-American roots. Now let's cut the shit. The slave roots. Maybe it's birth in New Orleans imbued a sense of voodoo on it. Maybe it felt too provocative, too dangerous to the ears of affluent whites and was labeled devil's music out of plain fear. Fear that the blacks were beginning to get too comfortable with their graduation from the plantations into the ghettos. And the result is that jazz, real jazz, not that pretentious latte sipping shit they play in elevators, true jazz, has brooding, murderous undertones. A jazz man is an experimenter, an explorer, an individual open to collaboration, a free thinker. Most anyone deeply involved or smitten with jazz has had their screws shaken loose a little. Because it has power in it. Power that calls to wayward souls, the disobedient, it speaks to the soul with a message that's clear. Slip off the chains. Don't mind traditional ways. And be whatever it is you want to be. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a Tier 13 exclusive OGDT3. The Devil's Music. Thank you.
It is the 50s, and a man who will eventually become known as the Sex Beast is on the prowl for dead meat. He's a necrophiliac, or maybe just a coward. Perhaps the reason he's breaking into morgues instead of houses is not that he prefers to rape corpses, rather it's that he prefers not to fight for his spoils. He's just climbing in through funeral home windows, sliding open cold lockers, creaking open caskets, hoping for something young and fresh, but settling for whatever is laying around down there. Can you imagine what kind of animal would be capable of this, capable of rummaging around in a morgue late at night, picking through the corpses in their individual stages of preparation, then hauling his selection out onto the floor or a stainless steel table where he fucks it? Just pounds away in a dead body? An old woman waiting to be buried next to her husband, perhaps? Or on occasion, if he's really lucky, a a little girl. How about just a little, you know, six-year-old girl who got hit by a car or something? What kind of absolute animal? Oh, yeah, right. A sex beast. His name is Melvin Davis Reese Jr. Melvin Reese, the sex beast. He's young, unsuspecting, from a well-off family a talented musician who's in love with jazz. He was a tall, rangy, striking figure with his jet black hair meticulously combed back, usually. Intense, angry, mocking eyes. Dracula-esque charisma with sheet-white skin to match. Movie star handsome, 20-something when he first starts feeding, but with an aura that makes him feel much older. Friends would later share that to know Melvin wasn't possible. He was more of an experience. He was a man who felt rules not only didn't apply to him, but that they didn't have to exist at all. To say that Melvin Reese marched to the beat of his own drum wouldn't be right, because there was no drum. There was only his detached view of existence, and the ever-present, exhilarating din of the devil's music. It is not clear when he began taking out his depraved sexual urges on the living, but it likely began in the early summer of 1956, when two 16-year-old girls, Mary Elizabeth Feathers and Shelby Jean Venable, disappeared from a racetrack they frequented near Fort Meade, Maryland. Investigators initially thought this was a case of two girls taking off with a couple of GIs from the nearby army base. And this theory began to hold water, when in the diary of one of the young girls, it was revealed that the two had been dating several different young men they'd met at the racetrack, specifically cute boys in uniform. When their naked, raped, and strangled corpses turned up nine miles apart, one in a river, one in a creek, it felt as if it would only be a matter of time before the killer or killers would be found. But this wasn't a double date gone wrong. This was the afterbirth of a serial killer being born in Melvin Reese, a young jazz musician ready to hit the road in his light blue Chevy a vehicle described in the newspapers of the Times, quote, The two girls disappeared mysteriously on June 1st after getting into a light blue car with a young man. The case remains unsolved, but the beast later admitted to it, off the record, and that quote from the dusty old newspaper gives me chills to think of who, what was on the road, on the prowl, at the time of its printing. June 26th, 1957. 35-year-old Margaret Harold and military sergeant Roy D. Hudson 
are parked on a dark, lonely side road in Annapolis, Maryland, when a light blue Chevy pulls up behind them and illuminates the interior of their vehicle. In most of the news coverage of this case, one will find varying accounts, pieces missing, that seemingly have no right being missing. The Chevy is green, not blue. The couple is driving, not parked, for example. But I'm working off old newspaper articles, not Murderpedia, so I hope to bring you a more accurate account than most. The couple in the car that are whispering to one another nervously, perhaps buttoning up their clothes, are a bit of a mystery. And I think I've discovered why. A search on findagrave.com revealed that Margaret Virginia Woodard Harold was married. Her husband was not Roy Hudson, the man in the car with her. It was John H. Harold Jr., and they had two kids together. Margaret may have been having an affair, or had at least recently separated and was spending some secret time with her soldier boyfriend, who was on leave at this time. It would explain why they were parked on a dark, dusty side road, and it's just a theory, but I believe it to be the reason why so many details seem to shrink away when digging deeper on this particular incident. Media had a little more class, maybe, in the late 50s, unlike today. Like right here? <laughs> Anyways, here is what we know for certain. Roy and Margaret watch as a tall, gangly man exits the vehicle behind them and saunters up, like Slender Man, through the lamplights. Roy will later share that the man's arms were incredibly long, like a chimpanzee's, and that he had dark, messy hair bloodshot eyes, a pale complexion, and an air of madness about him. This, of course, is Melvin Reese, the sex beast, and he confronts the occupants of the parked car as though he is an officer of the law, claiming he is some kind of supervisor of the secluded stretch when the closed, shuffling couple asks what the issue is. Melvin is, of course, lying, though he does cruise this area often. It's one of his favorite haunts. He's been up for days here, popping pills and furiously masturbating in a nearby hideout of his. An old abandoned shack with a cinder block basement just out in the bush a bit, where he comes to look at pornography and naked photos he's taken of past conquests, past passed away rape victims, to be clear. The sex beast had likely spotted the couple pulling into their makeshift lover's lane and thought, how convenient, before zipping his pants, grabbing his gun, and driving down to see what was what. Now, at the window of the parked vehicle, he sees he's in luck. He pulls his gun and opens the back door, sliding his lithe form in behind Roy and points the weapon at Margaret. He demands cigarettes, money, and when Margaret indignantly refuses, telling Roy to give the man nothing, Melvin Reese grabs her by the hair and shoots her point blank in the face. Sergeant Roy Hudson is out the door, before a mist of Margaret can settle on his seat. He is running blindly through the woods, eventually spotting a small house where he sounds the alarm. Meanwhile, the sex beast strips his victim naked and rapes the corpse. He takes his time with it, truly living up to his moniker. He's like a lion, slowly devouring its prey. There's no speed in his step when he slides away from the pitiful scene, tightening his belt with sticky, nimble fingers. The killer saunters off to his vehicle, satiated, climbs into his Chevy, casually slapping her into gear before puttering away, crunching gravel, kicking up a lazy plume of dust that covers his victim like a filthy sheet. The taillights fade, 
leaving the naked, bloodied form to collect blowflies as the beast finally collects himself after nearly a week in the woods to get home and get some sleep before his next gig. Melvin Reese, the gifted musician, the groovy late-night sexy sax man, the ivory tickler, dreams easy at his mom's house, has police to send upon his kill and cover their mouths with handkerchiefs to stifle sickness. They discover his pervert palace while searching the woods for clues. It's not far from the crime scene. And besides coming across the disturbing photos pasted all over the cold walls, investigators find a yearbook photo that maybe their perp had been coming across himself of a woman named Wanda Tipton. Working off of this, their only lead besides knowledge of the vehicle type and a description of a clean-shaven, handsome, yet disheveled, dark-haired man with the gait of a bipedal sloth, investigators track down Wanda Tipton and ask her if she has any idea why her photo would be taped to the wall of some creep's companionless coitus cave. She has no clue. Wanda Tipton is, forgive me, tipless, and it won't be until he is captured that she realizes her ex-boyfriend, the charming fly-by-night jazz musician Melvin Reese, had been harboring sick fantasies, featuring her university self's grad photo. Speaking of graduations, the sex beast would soon celebrate his own, the graduation from opportunistic killer to outright maniacal monster, a character straight from the slasher flicks just beginning to hit big filthy back alley screens across America. Melvin Reese had come a long way with his career as a jazz man and had begun rubbing elbows with mobsters and actresses while performing in the Washington, D.C. area. Strippers more so than actresses, to be clear. Some involved in B-movies focused on the genre of erotic horror. He is, in fact, living in a friend's Norfolk, Virginia beach house with an exotic dancer and actress at the time of his next attack. And it's interesting to note that she was a regular in the blossoming horror flick scene, appearing in a film named Mondo Topless, as well as co-starring in the shit movie Orgy of the Dead. Needless to say, she was most certainly a serial killer's kind of woman, if there ever was one. Though unfortunately for one family, not nearly enough to keep Melvin Reese from firing up his old sky-blue Chevy, popping in phetamines like Tic Tacs, and cruising until the music made him do it, until the horns filled his black soul so completely that they burst from his crown, emerging, no, protruding, slowly like a taloned trombone slide blood boiling up to sluice over his sight, all the world morphing into a sex beast hunting ground, once again, as a result. January 11th, 1959. He hadn't had much luck on the prowl in the two years following the Lover's Lane-style murder, at least nothing worth writing home about, or at home about, when a now 30-year-old Melvin Reese wasn't scumming around at the bars or with his woman playing house by the beach at a friend's place, he was keeping up appearances at his parents' home, giving music lessons to local students and preparing for a much less seedier crowd that he would often perform in front of as part of an orchestra. Besides the little shack with the cinder block basement, he had a few other hiding spots for his makeshift pornography. Reese was much like BTK in this respect, an old-fashioned sexual sadist, drawing crude images over cutouts from magazines, 
a noose around a swimsuit model's neck, for example. And like BTK, he was a collector, mainly of newspaper clippings. Though to call Reese old-fashioned in this respect is disingenuous, it was all he had in a time before the internet. A man like the sex beast today would certainly know his way around a floppy disk, at least. And yeah, we're looking at you, Dennis. Got caught using a floppy disk, like 2005 Raider. But I digress. Melvin used his parents' home to hide an accordion case, packed with writings describing his murders, his sexcapades with local corpses. This accordion case was usually also packed with his weapon of choice, packed with what he's currently packing on this crisp January afternoon of 1959, a 38 Colt Cobra revolver. The sex beast was a slave to the chase. In fact, he was so addicted to the thrill of inciting fear and his prey that he would often force another vehicle off the road, then either just wait and make the occupants sweat, staring at them through his rear view before driving off fully erect, or, if he was feeling particularly bold, he'd get out, loping towards the frightened occupants, and force them into their trunk. He'd just do this for sport and drive away. But on this day, Melvin Reese is starving for the kill, and once his blood's up, the horns begin to blare. Horns everywhere, on his radio, in his soul, upon his scalp, and in the air, the air all around the wall drops, who are on their way home when the bulky blue Chevy comes rumbling up beside them, honking away. It cuts them off, forcing Mr. Waldrop to screech to a halt as Mrs. Waldrop cries out in surprise. The two vehicles sit in the kicked-up dust, idling, as if both panting for breath out here on this lonely, tree-shrouded Virginia road. The exhaust from the sex beast's tailpipe is significant in the cool weather, and he emerges from it like a magician, stalking towards the wall drops, who, seeing this well-dressed yet disheveled young man as a threat he is, decide to flee. It's Mrs. Waldrop's continued cry of surprise that gets Mr. moving. She is basically holding a note of no fucking way, a note of no way, no how, and he slams the stick to reverse, next peeling back and away from the interloper who seems to vanish in the tire smoke and does not attempt to follow once back to his own vehicle. The sex beast drives on, well done, fair strangers. It's late evening when he's amped up enough to try again. And he's not just horny now, not just hungry. He's famished, with a bloodlust that won't be denied. The wall drops had done nothing to dissuade the sex beast. They'd only chummed the waters. Up ahead swims a family, cruising along the dark and desolate back road. Its plump bumper swaying provocatively in the approaching headlights dust swirling up behind like silt from a seafloor. The Jacksons, a father named Carol, 29, his wife Mildred, 28, and their two little girls, five-year-old Susan and one-year-old Janet, are returning home from dinner at Grandma's place in Apple Grove, Virginia, when a blue whale comes rushing up beside, then in front, and forces them to a halt, with taillights that glare a furious red, like a pair of bloodshot eyes. Through the exhaust and kicked-up dust emerges the real thing. But it is the gun, not the long, haunted face, that scares Father Jackson stiff. And the window to flee closes moments later when the growing shadow of the sex beast envelops the Jackson family vehicle. Sixty years ago, when it's that far gone it hardly seems real, 
Even less so when you see the photos of the family. Mr. Jackson in his late 20s looks like a mister. Clean cut, spectacles, smartly dressed, an air of sophistication, maturity that men these days lack, myself included. Mrs. Jackson, and I really don't mean to be rude in saying this, but she just feels much older than 28. I suppose it's the clothes, the conservative style, but my point is this family, to me, comes across through photos through time as one that in no way would expect that the man veering them off to the side of the road was intending to do anything more sinister than ask them for directions or for help finding a dog or something. They seem to me, the Jacksons, to be an all-American, apple pie on the sill, baseball on the radio style family. And there's never a more terrible crime than one doled out on the truly naive, the truly innocent. The Jacksons' abandoned vehicle is noticed the next morning by a family member, an aunt, who is immediately disturbed by spotting it, and in hysterics when she stops to look in and sees the keys in the ignition, Mildred's purse on the dash, and a baby bottle full of milk, laying beside some toys in the back seat. Police soon begin canvassing the neighborhood, which wasn't difficult. There's one house nearby, up in the trees a ways. But to their surprise, they gain a valuable piece of information from the occupant. The preceding night, the woman had heard a screech of tires and seen a flash of light roll through her house from the road. She opened her door to the commotion. Sound travels well in such places. And though she couldn't see what was going on, she heard someone exit a vehicle, then some aggressively whispered words, followed by a trunk closing, car doors closing, and then an older-sounding vehicle driving away. It will be two months before anything is known about what happened to the Jacksons. In the meantime, those who don't know the family speculate that the husband must have done something, that maybe the quiet, devout Baptist had another life he wanted full part in, and had annihilated his family to get there. But as we know, that's not true. And while Carol Jackson's name is dragged through the mud, his corpse sinks further into it, eventually discovered by two men out at an abandoned sawmill collecting sawdust for a rose garden. Their truck gets stuck in the aforementioned muck, and when they enter the ditch to head into the woods for brush to stuff under the tires, they discover Carol Jackson face down. The sex beast had demanded Father Carroll remove his necktie and possibly had his wife bind his hands with it before forcing the large man into the Chevrolet's trunk, then made Mildred pick up 18-month-old Janet and ordered her, along with five-year-old Susan, to get in the trunk as well. The road was deserted and dark, the only witness a pair of ears somewhere out in the trees. Reese drove the family 40 miles to Fredericksburg, where he cruised out into a desolate wooded area near a sawmill, parked, and retrieved Carol from the trunk, his hands bound, and pistol-whipped the father into submission. The beating with the butt of the gun was so violent that it jarred the cobra's hand grips loose, and they fell into the snow. Reese then grabbed baby Janet, likely from her mother's arms, slammed the trunk closed again, and launched the child into a ditch before forcing Carol to step up to the ledge above his squalling little girl and executed him with a shot to the back of the head. Carol Jackson toppled down and landed on his baby, which maybe pleased Melvin Reese. The weight of the man began suffocating the child, whose muffled cries could still be heard. But by the time the Chevrolet's taillights faded away to leave the scene in pitch blackness, the only sound remaining was that of a light snow 
flakes bouncing off the trees, to land on a father and his child, to eventually blanket them for their eternal rest. In a later recovered diary of Melvin Reese, he would write of his feelings in this moment as he drove away, quote, Now the mother and daughter were all mine. You'll recall the little shack from the beginning, where investigators found a cinder block basement with autopsy photos of murdered women decorating the walls? Well, this is where he took the remaining Jacksons. It was now midnight, and the girls must have been exhausted from the ordeal. But not the sex beast, no. He'd been up for days popping pills on the hunt, and now he pops a few more so that he can enjoy this intensely. Months later, and not long after a father and his toddler daughter are pulled from a ditch, two boys hunting come across the abandoned shack, and one of them notices what looks like hair spreading from a patch of turned soil. The boys do a little digging, just enough to uncover a skull, attached to the spread of hair like a root vegetable in some ungodly garden. This is little five-year-old Susan Jackson, buried on top of her mother, her head bludgeoned so brutally that her skull is in pieces. Investigators will pull Mother Mildred from the cold ground and discover a silk stocking knotted around her throat, fashioned in a way that leads them to believe Mildred had been controlled by it for some period of sexual torture that her assailant slowly inflicted upon her, forcing the poor woman to do things she likely resisted to the best of her ability, though perhaps her spirit had been broken after likely watching her daughter be bludgeoned to death, after losing her baby and her husband from the trunk, and hearing the shot, then the squalls of her littlest one, as the tall man with the evil eyes drove them away, to here. Here, where she was used like Melvin Reese used to use the corpses, how he used Mrs. Harold's body, how he likely used Mildred's corpse, little Susan's corpse, once he decided to let them die. The manhunt is on, Investigators connect the murder of Margaret Harold to the Jackson family slaying quite easily. Besides the bodies of the mother and daughter being found near the cinder block perv palace, they discover a red button from Mildred Jackson's dress inside the structure. But the trail goes cold. There really isn't much to go on, and a reward of $10,000 for any information leading to an arrest is posted in the papers. Enter Glenn Moser an old friend of Melvin Reese who has been watching the news closely on this case, as he is certain he knows that Melvin is responsible. Once the reward is posted, Glenn likely shoves a woman off a payphone and fumbles a filthy nickel into the slot. Glenn shares with investigators that his old pal Melvin had often spoken philosophically about murder. He spoke as if it were a natural thing and claimed that those who resist the urge aren't living to their fullest. Glenn Moser claimed that the Jackson family went missing soon after one particularly spirited conversation like this with Melvin Reese. He claimed that he'd even asked Melvin if he had anything to do with it, and his friend had not denied it. In fact, he looked at him devilishly, his usually slicked hair a messy bush on his head, eyes bloodshot, and smiled, a wicked grin. Investigators obtained a photo of Melvin Reese from his parents, who were less than shocked to hear that their boy, who had been behaving rather erratic as of late, was being sought by police. Investigators also spoke to some of Melvin Reese's students, who claimed that he had been covered in mud on more than one occasion, eyes bloodshot, seemed like he hadn't slept in days. When Wanda Tipton, 
The woman whose University of Maryland yearbook photo was found in the sex beast lair was shown the photo of Melvin Reese. She admitted to having dated him while attending school together. When Roy Hudson, the man who had witnessed a tall, slender, bushy-haired madman execute his lover, was shown the photo, he immediately confirmed what investigators were already now certain of. Melvin Davis Reese was their sex beast. Once Glenn Moser is assured he'll be rewarded the minute Reese is captured, he gives up the juiciest part. It turns out he has been in contact with Melvin and is certain the musician is working in a West Memphis, Arkansas piano company. And so, on June 24, 1960, the arrest is made, without incident. A trial soon follows, one where Melvin Reese shows up each day impeccably dressed as usual, hair slicked back, his effortless, dastardly draconian charm on full display. But it's soon obvious that there's no escaping this. The evidence is overwhelming. Investigators match the gun grips found at the Jackson father-daughter gravesite to the gun found in Melvin's parents' house. Oh, and they recover a diary, fully detailing the murders, as well as newspaper clippings from the Harold and Jackson killings, weird serial killer drawings on old magazines that I mentioned in the beginning. So he's cooked. It takes a jury less than an hour to decide the jazz man's fate. He will be put to death by electric chair. And the sentence seems to jolt Reese, who to this point had been unflappable. It clearly shocked him, if you know what I mean, to hear that his life was now over. And he quickly employed a plan to avoid having his hair messed by old Sparky. The next time Reese enters the courtroom, this time in an appeal attempt, he looks terrible. The sex beast is no more. Guards have to drag the long, limp-bodied killer from his cell and carry him all the way to court, where he's slumped in a chair, stubble-faced, spacey-eyed, a depleting werewolf facing daylight after years under a full moon. He keeps it up. That's one thing men like Melvin Reese are excellent at, disciplined at, presenting a front. He wears his cracked mask until the court has mercy, until they commute his sentence to life on account of him being unfit to suffer the death penalty. But it's a cracked mask that mends in time, making it possible for the man to humbly find God, to do an interview or two where he alludes to the idea that he may be a much more prolific killer than credited for. He lives, a legend in his own mind, and a man convinced that he's lived a truly full life. One where, at one point, he watched Mildred Jackson slowly suffocate, her torture and her agony so exquisite in her knowledge of what became of her loved ones. He knew what it was to be a god. He wrote of this. And then later he repented all of this in exchange for God's forgiveness. It was Melvin Reese's belief that he was closer to God than most. But when he begins to die of heart failure in 1995, I bet that mask cracked as well. I bet some doubt crept in and split it wide open to reveal the mangy old whimpering beast beneath. I am certain that when death comes for evil men, when it's time for animals like Melvin Reese to die, they hear it coming. They know, in the end, that what they've done hasn't been washed away by repentance, that these things strike a chord, a chord that reverberates, until such time it could fully be heard and reckoned with the devil's music.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.